This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I see the crowd is full here because everybody loves a rocket ship. <laughs> and I think you'll enjoy what is actually at the basis of a very technical study, uh, the twin study. And you can see on this logo here on the bottom all of the institutions that were involved, nine major institutions across the country, uh, to do an N of 1 experiment. And the N of 1 experiment here is with Scott Kelly and his brother Mark Kelly. Um, It's interesting how it got into this. Uh, First of all, to introduce these two astronauts, um, we did a study with them as identical twins, and so one might think that, yes, we have a perfect control. The trouble is, these are not ordinary people. (laughs) Scott and Mark Kelly's mother was the first policewoman in her city and raised them as a single mother while doing that. Uh, They were both Navy test pilots. They were both astronauts with many flights between them. Uh, and uh, Mark Kelly would still be in the astronaut corps, but he is the husband of Gabriella Giffords, and uh, after she was shot in the head, then retired from the astronaut corps, and now is running for a senator in the state of Arizona. Um, so Scott Kelly could not be selected on the basis of having an identical twin because federal law prohibits Uh, employing somebody on the basis of their genetics as part of safety for you. So Scott Kelly, on his own merits, was selected to be the first astronaut uh, from the U.S. to be in space for a year. And then after he was selected, he happened to say, oh, by the way, I have this identical twin. You may know him. Uh, Thus generated the year in space study. Um, to go through the beginning, uh, as I said, everybody locks, loves a rocket ship, and I love this picture of the Soyuz rocket because it looks like it was designed in 1950 and went into a comic strip. <laughs> That's because it was designed in 1950. The Soyuz is the most reliable human launch vehicle in existence uh, because of its long record. And unlike U.S. rockets, it's, it's uh, built on the ground sideways rather than vertically and then tilted up. <clears throat> so it goes upright and the launch gantry. And then um, it's subject to traditions as things are in Russia. Uh, so it is blessed by a bishop of the Orthodox faith. Um, Another tradition started by Yuri Gagarin is that all of the astronauts have to pee on the right rear tire of one of the launch vehicles. Uh, Female astronauts carry along a little vial of urine. And then uh, they go into this size capsule. This is the Soyuz capsule. Uh, And you can see Scott Kelly along with Kiryenko on the right there as they're packed in to the Soyuz. And the Soyuz is uh, launched, and 
under a protective cover which is released and then it releases in space this with solar panels and you can see here in the front is a device to grab onto the space station so as they then approached the space station and they grabbed onto it and pulled the capsule in to create an airtight seal. The computer said it had not secured properly. So they were looking forward to de-launching and going back without ever entering the space station. Uh, but those of you who have a Microsoft software on your computer know what to do in cases like this. They rebooted the computer, and the computer said, sorry, actually, you're secured properly, and they entered the space station. Uh, um, the next Soyuz flight up was just a supply vessel, and the supply vessel is shown here. Uh, this is uh, called the Progress Supply Vessel, but actually... It's the same thing, and, and this, gives you, this picture gives you an idea of the scale of the space station, which is probably the most complex machine ever built by man versus a capsule that will hold three astronauts plus supplies. So this supply uh, vessel in this picture is linked up to the space station, but the next Soyuz rocket launch supply station went up, and one of the uh, adjusting nozzles firing adjustments to orient the space capsule in order to lock on the space station misfired. And that capsule started rotating around, 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 and it's still up there rotating around, having run out of oxygen if it had astronauts uh, in it. The next Soyuz launch in order to get the next two astronauts up during their ordinary rotation was here. And as uh, shown, it took off properly with its uh, accessory rockets that are supposed to be shed then from the main rocket. And as shown here uh, in a dramatization for Russia TV, uh, this was a Soyuz launch failure where one of the booster rockets failed to come loose from the rocket, which went spinning wildly. Um, fortunately, then, the emergency rockets on top of the capsule uh, fired appropriately, took the Soyuz capsule up in the air before it had ever reached orbit, uh, since this was still the first stage of the launch, not the third stage. And then uh, the capsule plummeted back to Earth, hitting a force of nine times gravity as it decelerated, uh, leaving a cherry red streak, as you can see here, uh, as it went down back into the atmosphere. Um, and fortunately, the parachute did deploy, even though the capsule had to be spin-stabilized uh, so that the side that will absorb the heat of re-entry into the atmosphere could burn up rather than the vulnerable side of the capsule. Uh, the capsule landed and uh, tipped over on its side and was a little worse and burnt for wear. Uh, this gives you an idea of how safe spaceflight is. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the U.S. program has had worse casualties 
than the Russian program. Uh, I won't go over them. You're aware of them. But NASA uh, gives everybody who deals with the space program this little thing that can fit into your pocket and you unfold it and then it has all of the space disasters for all of the countries in the world uh, that have occurred to remind people that this is a dangerous job. But Scott Kelly made it, as you know, and he made it back. Um, his day became 90 minutes. Um, there's limited supplies, uh, so my grandsons thought this was the highlight of this presentation, <laughs> that they had to redistill their urine. Uh, the urine distillery broke down twice, and it was Scott Kelly's job to uh, rebuild it, as told in this book, which I recommend to you. It was very well written by Scott Kelly. Um, and besides uh, doing all the ordinary things that are required just for survival, he spent a year involved in research, and that's the research that I want to tell you about. And this research was coordinated uh, with the latest technology by nine institutions. And uh, as we go through these, and you can read along as they go on to this, uh, first was DNA mutations and structural variations. Scott and Mark Kelly have probably had their uh, DNA decoded more often than any other individuals on the planet. Um, methylation of the DNA. And so the DNA, once it's decoded, we treat with bisulfite and decode it again, uh, changing one of the uh, uh, nucleotides there if it is methylated uh, it's protected, and if it's not methylated, it's not protected, and so we can tell which ones have been methylated. And DNA that has been methylated is somewhat protected from being transcribed, so it's a little bit inactivated. Well, between Scott and Mark Kelly, the overall level of DNA methylation was the same, but methylation sites differed. Uh, one example pertinent to this presentation is that there was demethylation of the genes involved in production of the hormone somatostatin. The somatostatin is a master hormone that turns off a lot of other hormones in the body. So Scott had that going on uh, during his year in space, whereas Mark Kelly did not. Um, then we looked at RNA expression, and RNA expression revealed a great deal more than we had ever known about spaceflight. Uh, because when DNA is transcribed into RNA, that's the first step into actually taking the code of life and putting it into action. So it has to go to RNA. And Scott Kelly, in the first six months, had different RNA expression in about 250 or so genes. But in the next six months, had different RNA expression in 10 times that many genes. So uh, about 2,500 out of our about 25,000 genes, or 10% of the genes, were differentially expressed in the last six months of his year in space. Um, so the genome is expressed completely differently in space than it is on Earth, uh, and that's an amazing thing we had not expected. 
we measured uh, protein both in urine and in plasma, and the RNA tells the instructions from the DNA to be converted into protein, and that's what runs our body. So there were many proteins that differed. Um, ones I'll go into a little later, for example, were for collagen, the things that hold us together. Uh, you know, when you're eating a piece of meat, it's the gristle there. Uh, but it holds every part of our body together, and there was increased excretion of collagen into the urine during this flight. Um, we looked at antibody titers, and Scott Kelly got a flu shot in space. In response to the flu shot, he made ordinary levels of antibodies. So we say, oh, the immune system is working fine in space. Uh, but we also looked at B cells and T cells uh, because your immunity not only involves antibodies, your immunity also involves changes into cells that can go off and kill your own cells if they happen to be infected with a virus, for example. Which is what makes you feel so crummy when you have the flu. Um, we looked at telomere length, and telomeres are the caps on the end of chromosomes. Now, as we age, with each cell division, the telomeres tend to get a little shorter. So long telomeres are the sign of youth, and short telomeres the sign of senescence. Uh, the usefulness of this may be a prevention of cancer, for example, as you do too many cell divisions and the cell will no longer divide because the telomeres aren't there. Uh, well, it made the newspapers, uh, particularly in Britain, but also in the U.S., that Scott Kelly's telomeres lengthened in space. Uh, I mean, Einstein said if you travel towards the speed of light, that you slow down aging, but this was much more rapid even than that. Uh, on return to Earth, the telomeres rapidly shortened again within the first three days. Um, and I think this was related to his diet or lack of it in the space station, uh, but that's not at all settled yet. That's just my personal theory, which I got into the paper, uh, but only as a personal theory. Um, we measured cytokines. Uh, cytokines are hormones that act at short distances, the way cells talk to one another. And cytokines particularly talk to T cells and B cells and modify immunity. Uh, we measure 62 cytokines uh, in Scott and Mark Kelly at repeated times. And the cytokines out of the 62, 50 of them change significantly. They most dramatically changed when Scott Kelly landed. And at landing, uh, again, if, if you read the book, uh, he describes a very nice vignette of being at dinner, having a glass of wine, drinking with his friends. He's back in the United States. Everything is great. He's had a year in space. Now he's really famous, and he just felt awful. And he struggled to get up the stairs and just fell down and dropped into bed. Um, at the same time, that inflammatory cytokines... Uh, the cellular adhesion molecules that tell T cells and B cells stop off here and start attacking things. Uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, uh, which tells you attack this tumor, we're all elevated. Uh, we looked at metabolomics, that is, uh, the kind of chemicals that uh, the proteins make. 
And uh, I'll give you an example of one simple one, just lactic acid, uh, which went up dramatically in Scott in space and then returned back down. Uh, we looked at the microbiome on stool samples, and uh, basically nothing terribly dramatic happened except that in space, uh, 96% of both Scott and Mark's uh, microbiome was Firmicutes and Bacteroides classes of, of bacteria, which is probably similar to what you have in your gut. And in space, the Firmicutes sort of took over at the advantage of the Bacteroides and then returned back. Uh, this is probably related to constipation in my mind, but we really don't know what. Everybody who goes into space gets constipated. Uh, and then we looked at cognition. Um, Scott's cognition did great in space, a little better than at baseline, and then just fell off the wall after he landed, along with this storm of cytokines and flu-like feelings. And we measured the vasculature. Uh, Scott's carotid artery got thicker in space. Uh, when he came back to Earth, it did not get thinner. Uh, we know from head-down bed rest studies that we have done at UCSD trying to simulate lack of gravity that the vasculature in the leg gets thinner as you take a load of vascular pressure off the leg for a, for a month of head-down bed rest. Uh, and along with that, we were able to measure a change in collagen, which is a component of the vasculature. Uh, so that's sort of a thumbnail of the entire milieu of what we looked at, and I'll go through particular instances of that now after that introduction uh, to tell you what was really going on. Uh, so the way we got all these samples is that Scott Kelly drew his own blood. And here it shows, uh, centrifuged it, froze it, uh, put it in a return space capsule, came down to Earth, and along in the bottom, in green, you can see the days that Mark Kelly uh, had similar samples taken. Uh, we wanted to get identical days for Mark Kelly, but Mark Kelly was in Africa and so forth and touring around going on gun control talks. He was a very active guy. Uh, nevertheless, uh, gave us comparable samples at times he's available, which pretty well matched with Scott Kelly. And we froze and thawed those as well. Uh, to match the experience of Scott Kelly's returning to Earth where we couldn't put a sub-zero freezer in the return Soyuz capsule that was coming down to Earth. Uh, it did the same thing for urine, uh, but over here you can see the urine collection device, a little sort of suction device uh, that works pretty well for men in space to collect urine samples. And he would do random samples and 24-hour samples, freeze them, and return them to space uh, descent down to Earth by a Soyuz um, capsule as well. Uh, so what happened to Scott in space? The most dramatic thing uh, and obvious thing to see is that here in the first three days, uh, Scott lost two liters of fluid. All the astronauts do that. As soon as you hit microgravity, two liters go out into urine along with sodium. Uh, then uh, Scott is the blue line on this diagram, and in the blue line you can see that his body weight decreased continually throughout the year in space. 
the green line on top is his identical twin brother, Mark Kelly, uh, while as Scott Kelly lost 7% of his body weight, Mark Kelly gained 4% of his body weight, uh, well, because he's an American. Uh, if we look more closely in the top panel here at the caloric intake, uh, you can see that uh, Scott Kelly's caloric intake at the beginning was down here around 50% of the amount that he would need in order to maintain his body weight. And this went on for six weeks. After six weeks, then he got up towards a roaring 70% of the caloric intake necessary for body weight and continued that all the way through the year in space. As a consequence, his weight just decreased continually, pretty much on a smooth curve, as he was on a low-calorie diet, or as one of the astronauts who got off the space shuttle told me when we were experimenting on him, Ah, space, the world's best weight loss diet, uh, best weight loss diet in space as well. Um, so what was going on to change body weight? Well, for one thing, uh, Scott Kelly was exercising vigorously. Uh, we have a device on the space station called the ARED, Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, uh, that untold millions of dollars had been put into developing so that when people exercise on it, it doesn't set up a wave of bouncing that will damage the space station. Um, and uh, Scott Kelly, in his book, says that he exercised on the A-RED for two hours a day, six days a week. Uh, so perhaps not a tremendous surprise when we looked at his lactic acid here uh, in space, uh, that showed up in his urine. The lactic acid in the blue line on the top was tremendously elevated compared to Mark Kelly's green down here, which stayed just at baseline. A little interesting development around here, uh, Scott Kelly uh, pulled his hamstring exercising so hard and stopped his exercise regimen at that time, markers of bone reabsorption in his blood increased, uh, showing that you really need to exercise in space in order to prevent your bones from dissolving. Uh, nevertheless, no amount of exercise has been able to stop the astronauts from having their bones dissolving in space. And when they return to Earth, the bones do not regrow, and three astronauts have had broken hips, uh, perhaps as a consequence of that. Uh, in contrast, Mark Kelly had uh, low lactic acid until one final measurement very much at the end when maybe he looked at it, the results and said, oh, I gained 4% of body weight. guess I ought to better start exercising again. Um, uh, but at the very end towards this peak, when uh, just before landing, Scott Kelly nevertheless started exercising really hard, knowing that on return to Earth, his body would need to be physically conditioned, and then these blue dots very close together are the results for lactic acid on Earth after he returned to Earth. Um, so is this an anomaly, losing weight? Uh, well, here's results from space uh, shuttle studies I've done on astronauts either for 10 days or six months in space, and the black is pre-flight energy intake in their diet, and the crosshatch is 
in-flight energy intake or averaged over the whole time in space. And you can see everybody eats about 70% of what is necessary to re retain body weight. Um, it's been attributed to this. Uh, not only is it all freeze-dried food, uh, besides that, with no gravity, you can't warm food and have the warm air ascend into your nostrils. You can't take food into your mouth, warm it up, and have the warm air ascend up to your nose, and smell is an important part of our diet. But all of you know, even with not really palatable diets, if you don't eat enough for three days, seven days, you get hungry. You get hungry enough to eat whatever is there. The astronauts do not. Uh, so looking, is this an anomaly? What's causing this? Similar data for fluid intake for astronauts on the space shuttle show exactly the same thing. They drink about 30% less fluid in space. And that's been attributed, well, it's a pain to go to the toilet in space. It is for women. Uh, urination is not really a problem for men, and, and astronauts tend to be dehydrated. However, uh, when I looked over the Excel spreadsheets for Scott's data, it said he was drinking more water in space than he had before. Uh, did he really uh, do something different? Because the data that we determined from blood and urine measurements showed something else. Here on this diagram, the yellow dots are uh, Scott's blood sodium concentration. And at launch, once he got into space, then the blood sodium concentration went up. It stayed up the whole time he was in space. And on landing day, went right back down to normal. Uh, we measured urine aquaporin 2, which I'll describe a little bit. And it progressively increased throughout <laughs> space flight and then went down. So I talked to the dietitians for NASA, said, what's going on with this data? Our blood values says Scott's dehydrated. And his uh, water intake data says that he was drinking more. And she said, oh, well, the caloric intake is accurate because we can log the meals. We know what was consumed. But when Scott did his water intake, he just estimated it at the end of every week and wrote down how many containers of water he drank. So obviously that bit of data was wrong, and Scott was just as dehydrated as all the other uh, astronauts get. So what's going on? Why don't astronauts eat and drink in space? Um, I've got a theory myself, which the rest of NASA doesn't necessarily buy into, and that is that there is gastroparesis because we don't have gravity in space working on our gut. If we put patients at bed rest in the hospital and they don't roll around and move, they all get constipated. When we do head down bed rest studies on people to simulate weightlessness, everybody gets constipated. And when we gave a Tylenol to experimental astronauts on the space shuttle in the first three days of flight, had them absorb it and then draw blood, it took twice as long for the Tylenol to get from their stomach into their bloodstream in space as it did on Earth. So there's a generalized gastroparesis of the upper gut and the lower gut in space, and I think people just feel full. Um, 
there has to date, not in the Russians and not in the American literature, uh, been any studies of force feeding uh, to give as many calories as are necessary because we assume, well, everybody's overweight, it's healthy to lose weight, and that's probably true for a year. For three and a half years to Mars, maybe not true. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do with that data. Uh, we looked at aquaporin-2, and that's an interesting story because aquaporin-2 uh, registers here, uh, this green AQ2s, at the renal tubule where water is going through, filtered from the glomerulus in the kidney. And as vasopressin stimulates the vasopressin receptor here, it moves aquaporin-2 over there so that the asopress the uh, Aquaporin-2 can reabsorb water back into the bloodstream, and that's how you and I uh, don't get dehydrated just in the hour we're sitting here, which would happen without aquaporin-2. And the aquaporin-2 shows up in the urine. Uh, so this is the second time aquaporin-2 has been shown elevated in the urine of astronauts. Uh, and the reason for all of this physiologically is that on number one, a diagram of the body fluid distribution in this uh, picture uh, shows a sort of regular fluid distribution because our skin up here is pretty loose. And our skin, if you squeeze it around your ankles, is pretty tight. We've sort of got a spacesuit in our legs to keep us from getting edema at the ankles. And so blood is squeezed uphill from our legs to our heart so that our heart has something to pump. You go into space, and that leg compression squeezes the blood volume up towards the heart, uh, shown in number two here. That expands the atrium of the cardiac cycle. The cardiac atrium contains atrial natriuretic peptide, which it puts into the bloodstream, goes to the kidney, and causes a diuresis. And this is why you have to pee so much after you've been in a hot tub for an hour, because you squeeze fluid uphill and your heart expanded in response. So in number three, you get partial accommodation in space, and in number four, you come back to Earth and try to stand up and faint. Um, so what happened to Scott? Well, here we can see on the left of this diagram, just before launch, that Scott has wrinkles around his eyes. Uh, his eyes aren't puffy. His skin is a normal color. And in space, he has lost the wrinkles around his eyes. His eyes are puffy, and his face is pinker. Uh, and not, besides that, he's wearing glasses, which Navy test, test pilots do not wear glasses. Okay. In space, Scott wears glasses. Uh, and he has a lot of congestion up around his head uh, because he's weightless. Uh, so uh, looking at why Scott needs glasses in space, he did a sonogram on his own eyes and a sonogram on his own carotid artery in space uh, and then back on Earth, and we got measurements. Uh, why he was not puffy is if we look at forehead thickness, here's on uh, Earth before launch, seated, and uh, then lying down. 
then the forehead thickness goes up even beyond that in space. That's the swollen face you saw with lack of wrinkles. He comes back to Earth and forehead thickness goes down. So you do a sonogram right here and it records that and all is fine. Okay. Uh, we do the same thing though for retinal thickness and look here uh, seated or lying down. Retinal thickness is here in space. It goes up here and back on Earth, it does not come fully back to where it originated. Um, and he's wearing glasses because with the increased fluid in the brain, it pushes on the back of the eyeball, and the back of the eyeball at the red arrow is flattened, changing the focal length of the eye, and you need glasses in order to compensate for the change in the focal length. Well, if you can fix it with glasses, that's really pretty minor. However, if that swelling gets to this stage after space flight where it kinks the optic nerve, that's not good. And if it kinks the optic nerve to the point where blood supply is compromised, that may never return and you de develop blindness. Uh, so that's one of the more serious considerations we really had not thought about all that much before extended space flight. Uh, that our eyes are adapted to our living in gravity and they just don't do well with the extra pressure. Uh, Scott Kelly, uh, before he went up, had some retinal folds here, uh, seen on the bottom as this smooth curve. And after space flight exaggerated these retinal folds which are shown down here on cross-section, and they do not go away after return to Earth. Scott Kelly had retinal folds that you and I probably don't have before he ever launched into this flight from previous space flights that he had been engaged in. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, one potential solution is let's suck the fluid out of the upper body using lower body negative pressure. And uh, Scott Kelly did this in space uh, just a few times, but he remarked in his book that it was wonderful because the congestion in his nose was gone. He could breathe again. He actually felt that he could think more clearly without this congestion in his head. It felt great. Uh, but then he also notes that um, and they weren't watching the vacuum pressure too closely, and he just about fainted, and they had to turn off the vacuum. So uh, this can be done, but needs to be monitored. Uh, we have tried this before on the space shuttle, uh, and, and in this diagram you can see that this lady is in space by her hair, showing lack of gravity. Uh, in that one, uh, as an experiment with all of these extra bottles around, uh, we had electrolyte solutions for her to drink, then blood pressure cuffs here, lower body negative pressure here, trying to keep the extra fluid in the body, um, and the astronauts hated it. The instant we took off the lower body negative pressure, they got space sick again. <laughs> um, Scott Kelly in his book says that he was fortunate that he doesn't get space sick uh, but as you note from the dietary intake, for six, the first six weeks of space flight, he wasn't eating very much. Uh, so all astronauts, to some extent, get space sick. Um, 
But this may be one solution on a trip to Mars that we just will need long-term lower body negative pressure or some sort of artificial gravity to cope with living without gravity. Um, in, in studies I'd done on space shuttle uh, astronauts, you can see in this diagram that with short duration flight, uh, 20% of them flunked the stand test. The stand test was this sophisticated study we designed which says, can you stand up for 10 minutes without fainting? Uh, 20% could not. But after six months in space, 80% could not. Um, uh, when we then looked at what was going on between male and female astronauts, while 20% of the men flunked the stand test after two weeks in space, 80% of women flunked it. Uh, and in studies we did with the Weiner Grant Institute in Kentucky looking at why this happens, when we subject women to lower body negative pressure, they try to defend their blood pressure with increasing cardiac output, increasing cardiac contractility, whereas men defend their blood pressure by squeezing down their blood vessels. Squeezing down the blood vessels works if you're low on blood volume. It doesn't work to try to increase cardiac output if you're low on blood volume for the heart to put out. And so women have a harder time on return to Earth uh, after being exposed to zero gravity. Uh, we initially comp uh, compensated this with the spacesuits. Uh, this one used on the space shuttle adapted from the Air Force, uh, and we would go one, two, or three clicks, depending on how much they thought they needed. We've now changed that to spandex with zippers, uh, individually designed for each astronaut, and it works pretty well. Uh, the spandex with zippers uh, supports pressure, and when we do that and head down bed rest studies with people for two weeks and have them stand up, we seem to be able to support their blood pressure upon standing pretty well. Um, but with long-term space flight, we're not sure that'll happen uh, for the reasons shown in this diagram. On the top is urinary collagen type 3, and on the bottom, urinary collagen type 1. And the blue, you can see, is in-space measures in the urine. And the urinary collagen type 3 increased about threefold as did collagen type 1. We also know that Scott got a thicker carotid artery in space um, made up of collagen, that he had changes in the sclera of his eye made up of collagen. And uh, patients I see in blood pressure clinic who have genetic defects in collagen type 3 have a syndrome uh, which makes it difficult for them to stand up. So we need the right type of collagen in our blood vessels to make the blood vessels hold blood when we stand up and be tight enough so the blood vessels don't just balloon out and expand. And there's probably some of you who have genetic, genetic variation in collagen, and you can do the splits. And others of you who don't, and you're born that way, 
And if you're born with tight collagen like me, you can't do the splits. And if you're born with loose collagen like my daughter, you can be a ballerina. Um, but ballerinas and people with uh, loose collagen have more of a problem maintaining their blood pressure when standing up, particularly when dehydrated. So there's restructuring of the very structure of the body in space. And we can measure that in the urine as these collagens start to be made in response to changes in blood distribution. And we don't know how long that will go on, how bad it will be, but even on the limited gravity at Mars, uh, don't know if people are going to be able to stand up once they get there or not. Um, uh, the other thing that made the news uh, was telomere length, and we looked at telomeres in multiple ways. Um, uh, telomere length by RT-PCR, telomere length by fluorescent in situ hybridization, actually looking in a microscope and, and at the uh, ends of the chromosomes. And in the bottom, uh, telomere length in individual white blood cells. And on the bottom, you can see that the red lines are the Scott's telomere length distribution in his white blood cells um, when he was on Earth. And then in space, in the blue, is the distribution of telomeres in his blood cells while he was in, in space. And then when he landed, it returned back to the red line distribution. Um, so uh, telomeres have been an object of a lot of interest because it's seen sort of as a fountain of youth. Um, uh, but as we note in the paper, uh, telomeres also respond to exercise, maintaining a healthy weight uh, and a good diet. And uh, my guess is what was going on in space was Scott was losing weight and the telomeres lengthened. Uh, but in truth, we don't know the absolute cause for this, and, and it's an object of considerable fascination. Um, now, in space, the space uh, station is located just 250 miles up there. And that's this uh, lowest level circling the Earth in this diagram. And the farthest level up here, you see the geostationary Earth's orbit, where you get your television signals, okay, is where that, uh, where that station is compared to down here. Um, one reason for doing this is something that was discovered early on in space exploration is that there are these things going around the Earth called the Van Allen belts. And the Van Allen belts are the product of the magnetic field of the Earth deflecting charged particles which bombard the Earth from outer space and particularly from the sun. And the sun, it's mostly protons that come from the sun, blast towards the Earth. And when there's a big sunspot and a storm of these protons, that what messes up a lot of electronics on Earth. And you can imagine what it does if it's not shielded. Uh, that's also what causes the northern lights as we go with these charged particles towards the North Pole and the South Pole. Uh, well, the space station generally flies underneath the inner Van Allen belt, but the Van Allen belt is oriented towards Earth's magnetic field, 
and the space station rotates around the Earth according to Earth's uh, field of gravity. They're not identical. And so in the South Atlantic, there is what's called the South Atlantic Anomaly, where the Van Allen belt comes closer to Earth than elsewhere. That has knocked out the electronics on two satellites. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope turns itself off when it enters that. And Scott Kelly had the privilege of going through that occasionally for one year. Um, so he was exposed to more gamma radiation, which penetrates down to you in this room right now today, uh, but also to more charged particle radiation that we have much less experience with. Uh, and if we look then at Scott's chromosomes, you can see here uh, there's translocations and inversions in chromosome speak. Uh, basically, the chromosomes got blasted by radiation and broke. Uh, and if we look then counting those, uh, just what we see on a microscope, you can see that as Scott went on the space station, his uh, number of chromosome aberration frequencies increased all along while Mark Kelly stayed pretty much the same during that duration. Um, this is going to be another major problem for extended space flight out of low Earth orbit. Even going to the moon, we are out of the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. Um, so the sp space station has a special room that is shielded when there's a sunspot that explodes and throws a blast of protons at the space station, then the astronauts can go to that room and ride that out and then come back out. Um, but there's galactic particles bombarding outer space continually that come from supernova that exploded somewhere out in the Milky Way that have much more powerful particles from an exploding supernova, and they come from any and all direction, not just from the sun, and, and are a considerable problem and quite difficult to shield against. And so you see in the movies that we set up colonies on the surface of Mars, uh, and the astronauts are merrily farming there. Um, Mars has no magnetic field. And Mars is bombarded by these particles, and Mars has essentially no atmosphere because these particles have bombarded the atmosphere to the extent that it was just blown away. Otherwise, Mars would still have an atmosphere. That's how much these particles affect. And if we want to shield that, you're going to have to be several feet underground in Mars uh, for colonization of Mars. Okay. So, uh, Scott and Mark ended their year, uh, and Kirienko and Scott Kelly uh, were celebrating and finally being able to get back to Earth. And unlike the reentry I showed you from an emergency, uh, the Soyuz capsule divides up into three parts, and then the part containing the astronauts descends down back to Earth, hits the atmosphere, and deflects at an angle so that it can slowly burn off its energy, come down, deploys its parachute, and lands. This is uh, Scott Kelly being carried off of 
the Soyuz capsule. Um, you notice the posture. Uh, this is not our stand test. Um, uh, this is Scott Kelly writing in space with a special space pen that you can buy from NASA <laughs> that will write in zero gravity. It will even write on ceilings upside down. A great advance of the space study. <laughs> the Russians are much more practical. They use pencils. <laughs> the Russians are also much more practical about landing. Uh, the Russians put people on stretchers and give them a liter of intravenous saline before they ever stand up uh, so that they don't faint when they stand up. Um, and so we don't really know uh, with this loss of collagen in the legs uh, that Scott probably had going on what his response to standing in gravity on Mars might, have, might become. Uh, but we will need to learn that. The book has an extensive description by Scott of his return to Earth, back to his friends, uh, but also, as I mentioned before, how he felt as he had these flu-like symptoms uh, probably related to the cytokine storm that was going on uh, in his body. And in space and uh, on Earth for six months afterwards, uh, Scott did these cognitive performance tests. And you can see here is pre-flight, where red is bad and blue is good, the baseline. In flight, the Scott's performance on speed of performing these tests. And you see it's mostly blue. He was actually doing better in space. And then post-flight, this is speed and this is accuracy, lots of red. And if we look at here, speed, accuracy in flight, you can see that it fell off. And efficiency, the sum of these, fell off and remained down here for six months afterwards. Uh, so his ability to perform these cognitive tests decreased for six months. Now, other astronauts have been up, uh, Russian astronauts, for a year, and some have complained of these flu-like symptoms on landing, and others have not. We don't know at this stage if this is a difference between people and it's not going to happen to all astronauts with long-term spaceflight, or if it's just the macho kind of thing. If I say I get sick when I come back from a long spaceflight, I'm not going to go on the next long spaceflight. Uh, we're not quite sure what goes on with them. But now that we have quantitative tests that we can repeat for cognitive abilities, and we have 50 cytokines to look at, which change in space for immune responses and for feeling crummy when you get back to Earth, we can actually quantitate this as we re repeat this with current span uh, expectations that we'll put up seven more astronauts for a year in space to repeat this kind of study. Uh, none of the seven, because of federal regulations, will be identical twins. Uh, but we have the baseline here in order to know what to look at. 
This is the result of our N of 1 experiment. And, and I emphasize, this is N of 1. What I've presented is what happened to Scott Kelly on a particular space flight at a particular time in the space station. We know we can't generalize to say this is what's really going to happen all the time. But we also know that now we have a hypothesis for an enormous number of things to look at. Uh, we went into this uh, with a lot of institutions and not a great big budget, but a lot of expectations that if we get enough people with cutting-edge measurements of all the cytokines you can dream of and methylation of DNA and all these other kind of things that ordinarily we don't do on subjects, that maybe we'd find something. We found enormous differences that both say uh, there are problems in space, but we know what's causing them, or at least have a good hypothesis that's testable, which will lead to ways to counteract the problems, some sort of artificial gravity for the eye problems. For example, uh, for bones dissolving in space, we've now given seven astronauts bisphosphonates, uh, the kind of things half of you ladies have taken for your bones, and it works. Their bones don't dissolve so much in space. Whether that reflects itself into more bone strength, time will tell, uh, but we're coming up with answers to these kind of problems. Uh, so if we have a goal of putting a man on Mars, then uh, I think we're getting well on our way there. But for you personally... Gravity works, and we don't think about it much. But we were born to gravity. We evolved to deal with gravity. We do not cope well without gravity. So the next time you're cussing at that second flight of stairs, saying, I wish there wasn't so much gravity, be careful what you wish for. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.